is the fact of, of they've added things to the gospel. They've been mixing things in. They've let some of the outside forces, the outside world, the, the pagan worshipers all around them start influencing the ideas in the church. So he addresses that at the very beginning. We spent two weeks talking about the supremacy of Christ and how Christ is enough. And we don't need anything added to Christ uh, to fulfill what Christ said he will fulfill. He did it. You know, he, 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 ain't, he ain't doing nothing halfway. He's doing it all the way. Uh, so then today... Paul's responding to the second question, which I told you Colossians answers. And evidently the church had written him a letter. And part of that letter that they had written to him wasn't only the question of all this stuff being added to the gospel and all this stuff being added to the teaching. But somewhere along that line, they said, hey, Paul, if you really are a servant of Christ, why are you in jail? You know what I'm saying? Like if you're really working for God, if everything you're doing is really up to par with what it's supposed to be, shouldn't you be like a pretty blessed person? Shouldn't life be really easy for you? Shouldn't it just be nice? Shouldn't you just be sitting at the Ritz Carlton rather than chained up in some house that, you know, somebody's got to come visit and bring you food? And, and they're confused. And let's be honest, a lot of times when we look at the life of people, we get a little confused that way, do we not? Maybe even when we look at our own lives. We look in the mirror, we're like, Lord, I've been living for you. Why is this so hard? God, I've been trying to change everything I've been doing. I don't understand why you hadn't just given me the yellow brick road to walk down and, and everything to be hunky-dory, nice and sweet, and, and the way it's supposed to be. So Paul's writing, and, and he's, he's addressing this, and he's telling these guys, he's, he's telling us, this, this is my answer to that question. So two weeks ago, last week we had Mauricio from Honduras here preaching, so it was two weeks ago, so I hope memory's good enough. We had this chart. Hopefully it's on the slide. Just kidding. It's not on the slide. You should have memorized the whole chart last week on your own. No, there it is. Look at there. We called it first generation faith versus second generation faith. And what that meant by that is some of us live on the coattails of the last generation's faith. And we try to ride on into heaven on the past beliefs. And I want to challenge you. I think Paul's challenging. We're not going to go through the whole chart again. We don't have time for it because y'all will be late to lunch and, and all that whatnot. So, but, but what I want to challenge and remind you of this is, is the challenge that Paul's given these people. The same challenge I just preached the revival all last week up, up in Bowman was this. I want people, and I think Paul wants people, and I know the Lord wants people, to get their own faith. Yes. To grab a hold of their own stuff. To stop living on, well, this is the way it used to be because I used... No. No, you grab a hold of your own. You become a Joshua. You said, not only am I going to be given an inheritance, but I'm going to go take the inheritance. Remember, we talked about he didn't want to live on Moses' faith. He wanted to get into the promised land himself and grab a hold of it. And I want us to be a church filled with people who aren't living on somebody else's old school stuff and grab a hold of our own stuff, our own relationship with Christ. And until we get our own relationship with Christ, we're never going to be able to do the things that we read about in Scripture that excite us so much. You know, I read Scripture and I'm like, man, I, I, I want to be like the guys in Acts. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, want, I want people to write about me and, and when they drag me in somewhere saying, this is the dude who's flipping the world upside down for Jesus. Amen. That's what they said about him in Acts chapter 7. I don't know if you realize that. They literally dragged two guys in and, and, and two guys were sitting on the side and they're like, what, what are they dragging those guys in for? And the guy looks at him and goes, man, those guys right there, they did flip the world upside down for Jesus. Could you imagine somebody saying that about you? Could you imagine me in half strong enough to even do that on your own? Huh? So, so look at that chart and remind yourself maybe, you know, of, of where you're at in there. And maybe a better way of illustrating that is this. There's an old man sitting on the, on the rocking chair of his porch with his grandson. Had a slew of dogs. Had a lot of land, so he just liked to have all these, these animals. Remind me of the Browns house, you know, just, just dogs everywhere. Um, animals everywhere. And, and as he's sitting on there, though, ten dogs 
Ten of them get up and go flying through the woods. And they're chasing the little boy on the porch says, Granddaddy, what in the world are them dogs doing? And the granddaddy says, well, son, they chasing a rabbit. And he said, they're going to get the rabbit. He said, son, sit right there. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. He said, about 10 minutes is going to go by. And in 10 minutes, nine of them dogs is going to come back. They're going to come back. They're going to lay down under the porch. They're going to be panting. They're going to be wore out. And they're not going to do nothing the rest of the day. He said, about five minutes after that, that last dog's going to come back with a rabbit in his mouth. And a little boy got all excited. He said, oh, because that last dog's got the endurance, right, granddaddy? That's what you're trying to teach me. Granddaddy said, no. He said, because the, the last dog is faster. That's what you're trying to teach me, right, granddaddy? And the granddaddy said, no. He said, what I want you to understand is only one dog saw the rabbit. And that's what allowed him to continue to pursue the rabbit. I'm afraid up in church sometimes ain't but one. And please don't think I'm talking about no Easter bunny rabbit. It just happened to be an illustration that came up. You compare Jesus to an Easter bunny, I'm a fire every single one. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't you go there. Don't you go there. But my, 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 my line was this to come after that. And then I got scared because Lord knows Easter's next month and y'all be all confused, right? But I, I want a church full of people who saw the rabbit. Amen. And I ain't talking about no bunny. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about Jesus. I want a church full of people that saw. I don't want nine people chasing after something that somebody else told them about. I want the one that grabbed a hold of that thing, saw it itself, and pursued it enough to grab it, and it impacted his whole life because of it, right? You imagine how jealous the other nine was when that one came back with that rabbit in his mouth? Huh? You ever seen an animal when they when they do catch? They don't let that thing up either, do they? Huh? They don't share. You know what I'm saying? That, that's theirs, right? And I want us to be, now we are supposed to share Jesus, so I guess that illustration went the wrong way. But I want us to grab a hold of Jesus so tight that we don't let go of him. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want him to impact every area of our life so much that we can't let go of him. And please understand, I understand we got a church full of a lot of people who have grabbed a hold of Jesus, who saw Jesus, who chased after Jesus. You don't have to chase far, by the way. If you start chasing him, he'll run to you, right? But, but, but in that process, what I want you to understand is this. I'm not trying to yell at everybody for this. So don't feel disheartened, discouraged, or anything like that. It's like the three guys who was digging a ditch. Two of them was leaning on the shovel. One was digging. Boss man come by and said, get to work. You think the guy who was digging got upset or he got glad that he was offered some help? I think the guy who was digging was glad that he got some help, right? So, so that's, that's what I'm hoping for those of you that are, that are digging. Now, if you ain't digging, then I'm yelling at you and take it that way, right? Here, let me peek inside this first generation leader. Paul definitely would have been in that first generation category where I want us to move to. He writes this, this response to the Colossians. And he's answering the question of why, why is life not great for you if you really are one of God's? It's a real life question that a lot of us probably get hit with. We probably look at other people and wonder the same thing. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's not, so verses 24 through 29 is Paul's answer. Now I just want to jump right into it because there's so much, right? So verse 24, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. All right, let's just stop. We made it what seven words in. Huh? I rejoice in my, does it not sound weird? If you were asking somebody, man, are, are you sure you're one of God's because you're suffering? And they responded with, I rejoice in my suffering. What a smile. Right? Like they're, they're excited about this. You, you rejoice with your, your sufferings, Paul? So I jotted down the question. I says, was, was Paul just so spiritual? This is best. I tell you, the best way you can get growth in scriptures, ask yourself questions, right? Was Paul just so spiritual that he didn't care about things like freedom, hot food, a comfortable bed? Was he just so consumed by scripture that, that he was oblivious to what was going on all around him. No. I promise you, Paul wanted a good meal. You know what I'm saying? Like, I left work early every day last week because that Methodist church was willing to feed me. 
So I drove to Bowman and I got my meal before I preached. And I don't ever eat before I preach. That was a whole different kind of ball game right there. But, but I, I, you know, he's not oblivious to the stuff. He doesn't not want this stuff. Paul loved these things just like we love these things. And there's nothing wrong with loving these things. So here's point number one for you. And I don't know if we're going to have actual points or, or just rolling through these verses. But here, here's lesson number one, the big one. Joyful sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love even more. You can be joyfully sacrificial and still be joy, you know, still be joyful in that thing when you give up something you love for something you love more. You better believe Paul loved a good meal. You better believe Paul loved a comfortable bed. You better believe Paul loved not being on house arrest, right? Having the freedom to go about and do stuff. But Paul writes these Colossians and he's telling us, I rejoice in my sufferings because I'm willing to give up these comforts because I care and I love you guys even more. And I'm going to repeat that idea a few times, but Paul loved seeing people come to Christ. He loved their person, his personal freedoms and all that, but he'd happily give those things up because here's what he understood. Paul understood that Jesus is worth it. The kingdom of God is worth it. And lost people are worth it. Now, can you say all three in your walk? All of us would have shouted out number one, right? Oh, Jesus is worth it. Because we in church, we want to sound holy and spiritual and right. We don't want nobody to think less of us. Right? The, the kingdom of God is worth it. Oh, well, you know, I heard about the king. Yeah, it's worth it too. But could you say lost people are worth it? Could you say that I rejoice in my suffering because I love lost people more than I love the comforts of this world? Could you say I love Jesus more than I love getting to buy that new car? That I love Jesus more than I love Whatever it is for you, fill in the blank. Do we really understand and do we really love Jesus more than all the rest of it? Because I'll say this, without love and without joy, you'll never be able to endure the way Paul did. When I read Paul's letters and I study Paul's life and, and what he did, he's able to endure all this stuff because of the love and joy that he has. If it wasn't for that love and that joy, he'd never be able to. You, know, you talk about people with extra hours after work and, and extra stuff that they're doing. And you, and you scratch your head sometimes thinking about it. And you're like, I don't understand how that person's able to do all that. Because they love what they do more than the comfort of rest. Amen. And they understand the value behind it, right? It wouldn't be worth it or not. You could almost compare this to childbirth. Right? I, I, you could. And here's why. Here's exactly why. Cliff's shaking his head like, like, no, and here's why. Because I was told when Crystal first got pregnant with Paxton, I was told this repeatedly. And some of you new daddies, maybe even mamas would be able to relate to me. It's going to be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. So they would ask, they'd be like, oh, your first one, how exciting are you going to be in the delivery room? And I was like, yeah, because this going to be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. That's what I've been told over and over and over again. <laughs> and then I had the privilege of watching three live births. <laughs> and I think back to that first one, not to go into too much detail, but I remember like, Y'all saw Saul, right? Y'all see the movie Saul? You don't have to like pretend you're too holy to watch Saul. Like I saw it, so it's alright if you saw it, right? I would think Saul was like a Disney film. Compared to what I saw in that delivery room. So much so that first time, I remember looking at the daughter and being like, is this normal? When's the... When's the beautiful part coming? Like I was told this is going to be the most beautiful thing. When does the beauty start? 
It was so scary. It'll change you if you didn't watch it, man. I'm telling you. And what blew my mind even more is it wasn't long after. She wanted to have another one. What in the world would possess you to go through that again? And because I love my wife and wanted to be there, I was dumb enough to go in the delivery room again. And then a third time. My third child so awesome, by the way, while in the delivery room is when Bin Laden got killed. That's how awesome she is. She, she will be a Tammy. You know what I'm saying? She will be shooting sniper rifles and hitting stuff a mile out. She come into the earth and Bin Laden had to leave. Right? She a bad little girl. You boys didn't have nothing cool like that with your life. What I mean is this, though, as crazy as it is, as rough as it was and all this stuff, moms, almost every mom in this room, if not every mom in this room, would tell you it was worth it. Am I right? It was worth it. I would do it again. If that's what it took to bring you into this earth, I would do it. Again and again and again and again, right? Paul says to the Colossians this as he's, he's responding to their question evidently about, man, are, are you sure like this is worth it? You're, you're, you're like, your life kind of stinks right now, Paul. He says, this is how I feel about you spiritually, church. I rejoice in my suffering because I know what it's producing in you. I rejoice in getting up at six, taking kids to school, going to work all day last, last week, and then leaving straight from work, driving all the way to Bowman and preaching until about 8.30 and not getting home after nine and preparing another message for the next day. I rejoice in that because of the possibility of what it could have produced in 50 to 60 people that sat in that church in Bowman last week. It's worth it to me. Right? And I'd gladly do it again. And Paul's saying the same thing, except for on a much bigger extreme than my little four days that I sacrificed, right? He's saying, I would sacrifice it all again, repeatedly, over and over again, if it meant that you guys, I would pay whatever price, if it meant that you guys could really get to know Jesus. And it could become a real thing for you. So joyful sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love even more. So let me ask you this. Are you rejoicing in the sacrifices you've made, seeing God in those sacrifices you've made, or are you even making any sacrifices? Now, some of you thought you made some sacrifices this morning. I read this, you know, I got to this part and you were like, Paul, I understand completely what you mean. There were so many cars parked in the front today. I had to park in the field across the street from the church. I had to walk over 100 yards to get here and I suffered for Christ, Paul. You laugh. Some of y'all said, you know what? There wasn't, wasn't just one song I didn't like this morning. There was two songs I didn't like. I had to suffer, Paul, just like you suffer. Some of y'all said, you know what? Celeste had the audacity to ask me if I would help with the kids this morning. I'm suffering for the gospel, Paul. Somebody said, you know that Carla? She asked me to sing a couple weeks ago. She asked me to entertain the idea of thinking about helping with the music ministry. I'm suffering, Paul, for the sake of you. That pastor, he asked me to lead on a Wednesday night up in the men's room. I don't know what he was thinking. I'm suffering, Paul. Is that not the idea and the mindset we get, church? Huh? Too many of us say we just want to come to church. We want to hear an inspirational message. We want to connect with some friends. Maybe let our kids go have a good time in the back and then go home and feel good about ourselves. Is that too much to ask? Huh? I think it's too little to ask. If you want to be a first generation leadership in faith, you've got to expect personal sacrifice. You know, Paul or Peter wrote and Peter said, that's just part of it. He said, sacrifice is going to be part of your walk. So maybe you should be asking yourself this. If you're not sacrificing, maybe that means you ain't chasing the right rabbit. Hmm? Maybe it means you're not doing the right thing. Not personal comfort, but rejoicing because what you see produced in other people. You ever sit back and listen to some testimonies? Huh? 
Listen, listen to how excited people get about some of the ministries they've been a part of. You know why it's so easy to give to some of the, the foreign missionaries that we give to? Because we get to see the fruit that's produced. You know what I'm saying? Like when you see pictures of those, those kids having water in Africa, or those, those kids getting food in Africa, those kids having windows in their building now in Africa, right? When you get to see all the changes that happen at, at Youth for Christ Puerto Rico and how they turn that complex into something totally different. When you get to see ladies who, who will stand up with confidence and know that whatever a man said about them doesn't matter anymore because of who they are in Christ and not because of who they were in some other dude. Amen. Right? When, when you see people who were, who were contemplating uh, 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 abortion, then deciding to keep a baby and then raise that baby to be the greatest decision they ever made, and then come back and take parenting classes, when you see these kind of changes, yeah. it ought to be easy to write a check. Yeah. And if you can't write a check, it ought to be easy to donate your time. Well, I, I ain't got no money, Pastor. You got time, don't you? Want to get out there and help and do something. Right? Yo, if you ain't got nothing to do, go help these kids wash cars next Saturday. Right? That's a busy intersection now, man. I think they're going to have more cars than they can handle, to be honest with you. And I think it's a good thing. Right? So, 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 so yeah, bring some help. Right? Look at this. Paul says, far from being, here's what I love, far from being discouraged by these sufferings, far from letting this suffering discourage me, I rejoice. Because of what it produces in you. Look at the next part. Paul takes it up a level. He says, and I am, com- uh, I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the body. Now, two things I got to address here. Just to make sure we got it right. The word afflictions is never used. Understand me. Never used with Jesus' suffering on the cross. Anytime it mentions Christ's afflictions or anything like that, it's always used in while he's enduring it in the ministry. Just the, just the wording there. So all it is is making sure you understand the wording. So I, I don't think it's necessarily referring back to the cross. I think it's talking about the minister. So Jesus still suffers as he ministers through people then, correct? Because isn't he living inside each of us? Take it a bit further because my first question is, what could possibly lacking in Christ's affliction? I mean, after all, he said it is finished, right? Hasn't he done everything to save us? Why would Paul say something was lacking then? Well, in one sense, the work of salvation is complete. Jesus has done everything necessary for salvation for sure. But in another sense, the saving act isn't complete until we want hear and respond. Now you understand maybe where Paul's going just a little bit further with these words. Martin Luther said it this way, which I think that was that. It wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if nobody ever heard about it. That's some truth, right? What good is it if nobody heard about it? Carl Henry said the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Right? Paul's saying that Christ's suffering, they're not complete in the fullness sense until you hear and you respond. And if it takes my suffering to bring that to pass, I'll gladly go through it. Another pastor writes it this way. Christ's cross was for propitiation. Ours is for propagation. Christ's suffering to accomplish salvation. We suffer to spread salvation. Now, to put that in in easier terms for us to understand maybe is this. And this is kind of hard because this is unpopular teaching, right? This isn't how you're going to build a church, by the way. Nobody's going to build a church saying, come suffer with us, right? We want prosperity. We want blessing. We want all that stuff, right? But scripture tells us what? Suffering is the means in which Christ brought salvation to the world, right? And then he says this. You could really say expect to suffer because what did he say? He tells his disciples, as the father sent me, so I'm sending you. Now, we always look at it in, in nice little cliche ways when we say that phrase. But how did the father send Jesus? Did he send him down to sit on his throne, wear really fancy shoes, walk all over the top of everybody, have lots of money, drive a cool donkey? Nope. <laughs> what if Jesus had the fastest donkey out there? 
What if he had the highest lifted horse there was? Right? These are the things I would have done if I was God. I'm just telling you. Right? I would have sent my son down. He would have had a donkey that was faster than a cheetah. And he would have had a horse that was bigger than an elephant. Right? I would have, I would have made sure he had the best of everything. Right? No. That's not the way Jesus came. Jesus came humbly. Jesus came sacrificially. Jesus didn't come to rule. He came to serve. So if this is the way the Father sent him, how then is the Father sending us back into the world? Doesn't it put into maybe a little bit more realization of what exactly we're supposed to be doing? Maybe what we're not supposed to be doing and receiving? Jesus sends us into the world to salvation the same way he sent salvation through suffering. Maybe a way of writing it down is this. Life in the world comes through death in the church. Huh? Life in the world comes through death in the church. If we're not willing to die in here to the things we want, how in the world are we going to bring life to those outside? Right? If we can't be the ones setting this example for that, maybe you should ask yourself this, and maybe this is the way to ask you. Don't even worry about the, the quote. Are you willing to pay the price? What, what is the price for you, and are you willing to pay it? What did it cost you to receive salvation? Nothing. Right? Jesus paid the actual price, but now are you willing to take that message to other people? Where, where would you be without Jesus? I'm going to give you the answer to this one. So you can write, you can write down even the answer. Right? Where would you be without Jesus? The same place other people are that you hadn't told about Jesus. Right? The same place. Paul continues for this reason. Verse 25. I have become it's talking about the church. I have become the church servant. Now, some of your translation have the word minister there. I don't like minister there. One, because it's not the exact translation, but two for this. When you hear minister, you think of like a professional Christian. You do. You think the pastor, you think somebody in a, in a leadership position or whatever. That ain't what he's talking about. He said, I've come to be a servant. I've come to serve others. Is that how you see yourself a servant of the church? Or do you see yourself as a beneficiary of the church? See, we've, we've mixed up and mumble jumbled all the beliefs. Now, now it's, we go to church where we can get out of the church. You start church shopping. I want the one that's got the best music for me. That makes me feel the best, Right. I want the one that's going to give me something when I need something. I want the one that I can lean on. Oh, you're not willing to put forth the work. Christ says that when we join the body, we become part of the body. Well, well, the body's got to work, right? If you've got a piece of your body that's not working, isn't that a red flag? Is that not something you would schedule an appointment and get checked out? If your arm all of a sudden quit working, right? You're just going to go through life the rest of life with that, that arm just stuck there and you've been able to move everything but that one arm? No, you're going to schedule an appointment with the doctor and you're going to figure out, hey, what's wrong with this arm? I need to get it activated again. Is it not the same way when we talk about the body of Christ? I need to make sure every part of the body of Christ is activated and doing something. Not leaning on shovels while other people are doing stuff. Do we come to church asking, what can the church do for me? Or do we come to church wondering, what can I do for the ministry of the gospel? How can I get involved? Is there a gap I can fill in? And I'm not saying you shouldn't get some benefits from the church. There's nothing wrong with benefiting. And we want to bless you. We want to bless your family. Please understand that. What I'm saying is making sure you got your primary focus right. And your primary focus is in the right order. So are you a primary servant, as Paul says? Or are you a primary beneficiary? Paul, he didn't even take this on his own, by the way. In that same verse, he says, God put me in this position. The Father put me in this position. Abba put me in this position. He didn't put himself there. Paul says, I am the servant according to God's commission, which if you break down the word commission, by the way, in the Greek, here's what I love as he's writing this, this group of people, the word commission means an individual assignment. 
It's easy for us to come to church and be like, oh yeah, the church should be out there doing stuff, right? God does have a global church mission, a big picture. But when you read verses like this and you break it down and actually understand it, he's saying, I got an individual assignment for you. Oh, well, we don't like that, right? Because now we can't lean on somebody else in the team to do it. You know, the, the, the boys are running track now. Which, by the way, I love my smartest son. Y'all pick which one he is, right? But I love, because he was asked, like, how's track going? His response is, there's a lot of running. That's my boy. That's my boy, right? He did also respond with, there's no hitting. So he's ready for football season. <laughs> I picture him tackling the dude who passed him on the last right No, don't do that. Just say you just follow Individual assignment. You realize, like, when you, when you have an event like that, it's on you. Right? But we like team sports. Why? Because then we can blame somebody else if it don't go the way we want it to go. Huh? Isn't that the way it is? Oh, we can point at so-and-so and blame them. No, God's got an individual assignment for you. He's got purpose in your time, your talents, and your treasures. And if you don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. I, I started looking at, I'm going to confess, I was supposed to be preparing my sermon and working real hard, right? But I started looking at pictures. You had one job. Y'all ever... Y'all ever heard that phrase? Man, you had one job. Here's one job fails. Check this one out. I had one job and I failed. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> what? Are you serious? <laughs> well, you can't get an example like that anywhere else, can you? I don't know where to go because everything after this is based off of a picture. <laughs> Um, it's like Mike. Oh, Mike's, Mike's already left. What a man. What a slacker. So now we pick on him. Oh, oh, look at mom. Y'all see that? Mama pulled a spiritual girl. He's working with Kids Haven. He's hauling at your boy. Let me tell you about your boy. Your boy passed another truck driver the other day. Huh? I'm telling you, he passed another truck driver. This truck was broke down, had a truck full of penguins. Straight up, 5,000 penguins in this truck. It was crazy. So Mike pulled over and said, hey, man, you all right? The guy said, man, I got to get these 5,000 penguins to the zoo. Right? And Mike said, well, well, I don't know what to do. And the guy said, I'll give you $1,000 if you take him to the zoo. Now, you're already on the interstate. Riverbanks is, what, 45 minutes away? So Mike says, man, that's good money that fast, right? So Mike says, I'll take him. So it was like two or three days later, this guy passes Mike again. Right? Mike's got 5,000 penguins in a straight assembly line walking behind him going downtown. So this guy gets mad. He pulled up and said, hey, I gave you $1,000 to take all those penguins to the zoo. What are you doing? Mike said, well, I took them to the zoo. And with all that extra money, now we got money to go to the movies also. <laughs> he didn't know his real purpose. Is that right? He didn't know his purpose. Do we not get confused sometime in our purpose? Do we not get mixed up sometime in our planning? Do we do something thinking that's the right thing to do when we just didn't have a clear understanding of what was expected of us? I wonder sometimes in our walk with Christ if we're doing things. You know, we sang that song. We sang that song. Literally, I had to go into prayer when we sang that last song. And it said, Lord, we'll wait on you. We'll wait on you. I closed Wednesday night with that, that, that revival. And I told him, I said, you know, it's easy to get super excited after an event like this. You know, there was good music. There was, there was just some powerful, powerful stuff going on. I said, but I don't want you to run out of here let off of emotions. If it means you got to sit here and wait on God to give you the right vision, 
You don't run out of here till you know what the Lord's vision is for you. So we can sing that song, God, I'll wait here, But will you really wait on him? Will you really wait until you make sure you got a clear understanding of what's expected of you? That's the biggest difference, man. Because if we run out of here, we'll be hauling penguins up to the zoo and then back to the movie theater. Right? Looking all weird and whatnot. Now look at the picture on the screen. That's good teamwork right there, right, baby? Oh, we're on the last one first. All right. <laughs> you had one job and you did fail. There was, there was pictures like turning left when the arrow was turning right. and There was all kind of other stuff, but you had one job. <laughs> and you failed. This news guy had one job. And they even had this nice little template laid out for him. Name here, name here. And instead, what do they do? They just put name here, <laughs> name here. And I think a lot of us, look at that guy's face. He looks confused. He looks lost. He looks unsure about what's expected of him. And I just wonder sometimes if that's not the picture of the church. <clears throat> if that's not the picture of those that saw somebody else grab a rabbit, but they didn't grab it themselves. Right? We're lost. We're confused. We, we don't know what to do. <laughs> Come on, man. Don't go there. He's confused about his purpose. Understand this. Look at the word stewardship. This is what it kind of feeds off of this word, right? Stewardship is something giving, given to you, not for yourself, but for the sake of somebody else. That's stewardship. Sometimes I think like God, we, we get confused thinking like, well, God gave it to me for me. No, God gave it to you for somebody else. So God gave it. It was to you, but it's not for you. It's for somebody else. So scripture says this, and if you want to really get hard into this study, here's a truth that came about from it this week that we won't get to go into much. But scripture says, if you don't use it for the purpose God gave it to you, God considers it stealing. So then it makes me think, and not to call any of them out, but just the easiest illustration is how many people God's gifted with this ability to sing so beautifully, yet they don't use it for the glory of God. They use it for selfish ambitions. Huh? If that's not enough, I have a, I have a, a very, very wealthy friend and he literally will tell me this. He said he, and he believes this 100%. God allowed me to get rich so that I could give a lot of money away. Amen. That that's his, that's his thing. And he does it right. And I'm talking, I'm talking about a guy who actually my guy who was a millionaire, lost everything and had to build himself back up. Now he's like way, way better off. But anyway, um, you know, his, his, his literal belief is that God's allowed me to get to this point so that I can give a bunch of it away and help other people. I was reading about a, a group from another church up in North Carolina and they, 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 they uh, bought two dormitories and started putting like refugees and uh, women from, from battered homes and stuff in. It gave them so much passion. They ended up buying the whole building, which had 32 more rooms in it. Oh, man. So now they got 36 rooms that they house and just give people free housing, do stuff. And, and they're like smiling while they're telling you about it. I picture some people nowadays be like, and, and I had to spend the extra five dollars to you know what i'm saying like we, we we don't have that when you have the right kind of joy about it it changes the way it's presented romans chapter 1 verse 14 paul another letter paul writes and he calls himself a debtor to the romans right he says to bring the gospel to them jesus had given him a commission and he's now a man under obligation look at what he says i'm obligated both to the greeks and the barbarians both to the wise and the foolish what's he saying 
He's saying, I'm obligated to everybody to preach the word to everybody so that everybody can know about, what's that song say? I'm just a nobody telling the world about somebody. So that you guys can all know about the capital S, somebody. Right? Paul's excited about this kind of thing. You go to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. I I love this right here. If you ever need to know what God expects of you. I know in the Baptist church, we don't talk about expectation a lot normally, right? But God's got some expectations of you as well. Micah 6, verse 8, it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Oh, hold on, pastor. The Lord don't require anything but faith. Yeah, well, keep believing that and you need to take out half your Bible and get rid of it because that's not entirely true either. Let's study scripture, what scripture says, right? What he's saying is this. I want to know this. God, what, what do you want? This is what Micah's saying. God, I want to know what is it that you want of me? What am I being held accountable for? A, a good thing to ask, right? Something maybe all of us need to ask. And God says three things in a nutshell, really. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Those are three expectations for every believer. To do justice. And by the way, justice in the Bible is not just being fair and not stealing. You break this thing down a little further. To be just means using what you have for the reasons God's gave it to you. Matter of fact, if you go back into the, to the Old Testament, when it uses the word unjust, which is in more than 200 places, right? It's for those in positions of privilege that don't leverage that position for those without. Meaning that if God's blessed you with a lot, to be just is then to have a matter of charity to help people out through the eyes of the Lord. Right? And poverty is all around us, by the way. And while I'm here and we're, we start thinking about this and you say, well, well, pastor, I'm not really rich, right? You realize Americans make up less than 5% of the world population, 4.25 to be exact, right? World population. However, we account for more than 25% of the world's wealth. That's, that's huge, man, right? You, you make up less than 5% of the people, but you got 25% of the world's wealth. And I'm not telling you to feel guilty about that. I think that means we produce a lot more than anybody else and we do a great job, Right? The point is, I'm trying to make is this. Living in the U.S. means you have a lot compared to the rest of the world. In comparison. If you make at least $34,000 a year, which I know that you think that means you're broke, you're at the top 1% of the world. Now, I'm a business guy, so I understand your cost of living in every area is different too, okay? I'm not, I'm not saying you can live as comfortable as some people with 34000 in America, okay? But when you consider the fact that 2.5 billion people live without houses... The 2.6 billion children have inadequate nourishment, including clean water. When you consider that every week 100,000 kids die of starvation or some other form of preventable hunger-related diseases, I had to write the word that requires something of the church. We should read this stuff and it should require something of us. Another study put it this way. That the, the American Christian has a combined annual income... Of $5 trillion. It rates us out of all the world. It rates us as the richest faith community in history. And all that sounds great. And all that sounds exciting. But my question then is what are we doing with it? Because when I hear that. Here's what I think. That makes me think. Well then God has given us everything we need. To start solving some issues in the world. And we're not doing it. Right? That means God has provided. And transformed. And could transform. Everything in the world through the church. And we have it. But are we using it? Are we doing anything with it? I'm going to go ahead and say this while we're talking on on money. And please understand this. 
I don't talk about money a lot and I get a little edgy on money and I ain't trying to convince you to give to us at all. If you need to go give to another organization to prove that I ain't trying to get none of you for this organization, that's fine with me. I only want to make sure we're being obedient to God. All right. So, so just go ahead and get that on, on out of the way. But, but, but here's just a, just an idea about it sometimes when it comes to all of our ideas about money and all this stuff. He's going to say in a minute, Daniel read it for us on, on, on the phone call. He says that, that we sh- our lives should look like a mystery to the rest of the world. Well, he, here's just an idea I got this week that I was thinking. This might sound crazy to a lot of people, right? That means that if, if me and, I don't know, four or five other guys, me, Larry, Paxton, Dave, and Gary, we all make the same amount of money every year. And everybody knows it. Like, you know roughly what people make. It ain't like no big surprise, right? The guy who's going to be a mystery is the guy who's living less than the rest of them, right? Is that a safe way to picture it? You know, they all go out and buy that new F-150. And I'm still driving old blue. I got to make myself feel spiritual, right? So I'm the one that does the right thing, right? That, that doesn't it look like I'm living below my means. Well, then you got two questions. By the way, there is two questions on that. That either means I got a big old bank account I'm just storing it all up in. Or that means I'm doing something else with it. Right? Which way is it? Which way is it? You decide, based off what Paul said, joyful sacrifice is when you love something so much more than whatever you loved before. Right? And, and Paul is getting this thing. And, and understand this, and, and I love stories like what Tammy says. I love what Crystal used to come back home and tell me about LPC and, and all this stuff. But please understand this. It is okay to be motivated by suffering, but I hope and pray that we realize as a church the greatest suffering in the world is eternal suffering. Those that are lost without the gospel. Right? And if our goal is just to feed them and not tell them about where that food came from, we drop the ball there. There's plenty of worldly organizations that will do that. So to, to do justice, use time, talent, treasure for the purpose God gave. The other thing he says, and I do believe God holds us accountable and responsible for it. The other thing he says, not only do justice, he said to love mercy. To love mercy. Here's another way of translating it, to show mercy. Now ask yourself, how often do you show mercy? You know, the, the safest place to start showing mercy, probably the hardest, but the safest is at your house. You show mercy to your kids? You show mercy to your spouse? Huh? Unfortunately, what happens because we're most comfortable in those areas as well, those are the areas we show the least amount of mercy because it's easy, easiest for us to react in a negative way and not feel as judged by the outside world from it. Am I right? Right. But shouldn't that be the place we start? Huh? Shouldn't we show mercy in the church? You know, you show mercy because you've received mercy, right? I'm a recipient of great mercy. So therefore, I, where would I be without that mercy? The same place somebody else is who I haven't given that mercy to. What else does he say? So uh, have justice, show, uh, to love mercy. And then he says, to walk humbly with your God. I love this. Go back to that church of Acts. They transformed the world upside down, right? These were people without money or power. They had nothing. But it says that they flipped the world upside down. Why? What did they do? They simply listened to a God and obeyed God. They listened to and obeyed God and walked with God. I want us to be a church that is full of people that hear from God firsthand. I don't want you to go have to call your grandma and ask, Grandma, what was that old-time religion like? I want you to have that, that real-time religion right now. Real-time relationship, right? I want us to be people, and I'm not talking about hearing no mystical, weird voice. That's not always going to be the way it happens, okay? Y'all go home and sit in front of a wall and stare at it. Well, pastor said the Lord's going to speak. I'm going to keep sitting here until I hear it. Right? God bless you if it happens that way, but I don't think it's going to always, right? 
I want you to do the best of your ability to hear what God is trying to tell you and show you. For some of you, I'm going to be honest, it's going to be the longest, largest, and scariest moment of your life. It is. It's going to be frightening. I can hear, it's funny, we, since they're not here, I tell them them too, right? So maybe they're being holy and serving somewhere else also, right? But, uh, <laughs> sorry, mama, protect your baby, right? Guy and Beth, like their roles kind of changes. KB agreed to go on this mission trip, right? Like, like strict daddy used to have lockdown on it is now mama having to, oh, she's worried about that baby, right? It's a scary moment, huh? I'm thinking like if the Hondurans keep Paxson, I got two other ones. So, you know, <laughs> they'll send him back. I promise. <laughs> but, but, but think about this seriously. When you start walking with God, you start using your resources. You start acting just, justly and, and showing mercy. You know, when you start doing what, what Paul says that you've been commissioned to do, it's going to be scary. And if it doesn't scare you, maybe you're not doing the right thing. It ought to, you ought to have some nerves about it, right? Paul says, my commission was to make God's word fully known to a certain group of people, and I'm doing it. God, God doesn't have vague things. I, I, I told the church last week, like if you, if you got vague goals, you get vague results. And I think that's true for us as well. And I think that's true for God, except for I don't think God gives us vague goals. I think he gives us very specific goals. Paul knew exactly who he was supposed to preach to, right? So in verse 26, he says, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and I go on and describe the message. And here's the message. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generation is now going to be revealed to the saints. What is the mystery? Or who is the mystery? Maybe is how I should say it. It's Christ. Every Old Testament prophecy pointed to him. Everything from all of history from the very beginning pointed to him. But watch this. He goes even further in 26. He says, not only the mystery hidden for all the ages and generations now being revealed. Watch 27. But God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery is not just Christ himself. The mystery is Christ in you. And Paul's writing this and telling this church, and he's saying, the world ought to look at you guys and think there's something mysterious about you. Do we show the world something that's mysterious? Do they even want to check out and investigate what we got going? Neighbors, friends, family? Do they look at how we give and wonder why? Do they look at how easily we forgive and wonder why? Do they, do they wonder why we sacrifice what we sacrifice? Do, do, do they wonder why we do what we do? Do they ever say, what's up with that person? Does anybody ever respond after they say, what's up with that person? And say, I don't know, it's a mystery. Do they call you weird? You realize it'd be a compliment to be called weird in this world? Seriously, it would be, it would be a compliment to be called weird in this world. This is the Christian's hope of glory. And, and, and I'm not talking about your hard work and your devotion to God. I'm talking about the abiding presence of Jesus in you. What Paul writes is saying, the mystery is Christ in you. Not putting up a game, not showing face, not pretending one way or the other, but Christ literally shining through your life. Making decisions that like don't seem right, that seem weird, that hurt, that aren't comfortable. But doing it because it's worth it because of Jesus. Maturing. How do we, how do we title it? You're maturing because of that walk. We ought to be constantly maturing in this kind of thing. It goes even further in the book of Ephesians. Paul writes and, and he refers back to this mystery as well. And he says the mystery is how is God going to take all the Gentiles and all the Jews and put them together? You know, Paul always, if you check out all Paul's letters, he always finds a way to go back to unity. And that's what he goes. He says the mystery 
is going to be when the Gentiles and the Jews all get together and they're all united by one father. That's part of the mystery. And Paul writes about other mysteries, but it's just, it's just, it's just cool, cool what he's doing. It's going to make people wonder why, you know, how can two groups, you ever thought about that? So for, for their world, that was two of the most opposite groups you could get, right? Gentiles and Jews as, as far on one end of the spectrum as you could get. I don't know what, what you would compare it to today for as far as on one end of the spectrum to the other, but I realize that church sometime and the body being brought together should be that mysterious to the world. How can the blacks and whites get together? How can the, the foreigners and the, and the domestics get together? How, how can men and women get together? How, how can Methodists and Baptists and Pentecostals and Baptists and, and every other religion in between, how can they get together for one purpose? It ought to be a mystery. It ought to be a mystery. And that's what Paul's writing about. So I say, then he goes into 28. And this unity and the striving. He says, as we preach and as we're unified, we proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. How do you get mature? Verse 29. And I labor for this striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Here's two things from this verse. Verse 29. Number one, striving with his strength. Works powerfully in me. Ask anybody who's ever walked for God for any length of time. And they'll tell you, you can't do it without his strength. Yeah, right. Ask any foreign missionary. Ask any, any, anybody who, who's ever gone and shared the gospel. Ask anybody who's ever tried to live for Christ as long as possible and as close to him as possible. And they'll tell you, you can't do it without his strength. But with his strength, he makes all things possible. I would say the best way, maybe here's some advice. The best way to deepen your relationship with Jesus is to help other people discover theirs. Right. Seriously. I've watched in our upper room and, 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 and just seeing the growth of men begin to take hold of the gospel themselves and teach the growth that takes place. I've watched people who, who agree to go to places and go on these trips and, and do things and they just come back differently. Uh, understand it's like, a, like when you go on the mission field, yes, the mission is for whatever that mission is, but it does something to you too. So God's got a mission through you as you're going out to do a mission he had for somebody else. I've watched people come back from after years of being away and just be differently in a good way. Have changes take place in their life and, and their eyes have been opened to different stuff. It's just, it's just pretty, man. It, it's, it's a really good thing. And the best way sometimes to deepen that relationship is helping other people do that. Could you imagine what would happen if we got into some more Bible studies with more people? You'd have to grow, right? I mean, you can't, you can't open the Word of God and study it and then not change and impact your life. So, so man, we ought to have... And we ought to have a men's Bible study. We ought to have a leadership Bible study. We ought to have a spouse Bible study. Uh, we ought to have our kids Bible study. I mean, we ought to have so many Bible studies, we don't even know what section of the Bible we're in. You know, they like, all just consume us. We ought to be consumed by Scripture. Maybe there's a good point that ain't even in there. Here's the second thing he says. And I don't think there's anything you can read or listen to or memorize that will help you grow quite as much as pouring yourself out into somebody else. Second thing. My goal is to present to you mature and perfect in Christ. Then comes this, this comma that nobody likes, right? Which includes warning you. Right? We proclaim him. Oh, this translation has it back or, uh, in reverse order. We proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Y'all ever been warned by your mom and daddy? Huh? Don't do that. Right? Son, I'm going to tell you right now, I know you like to talk. So when you go to class today, not that I was ever given that warning, but I think my sister was right. Huh? You get warned, right? And then what happens? 
Then you get popped. Wouldn't you rather be warned before the pop? Huh? Because then at least there's that chance, that possibility, right? I think God gives us a lot of warnings before we have to get popped if we pay attention to them. He gives us a lot of ways out before we completely fall. If we'd open our eyes and see it, right? Open our hearts and our minds to, to understanding it. And what Paul is saying right here, and I'll say this, I'm going to take it from, I'm going to take it from Jesus' words. I'm going to take it from Paul's word. I'm going to take it from other stuff in new scripture. We go back to the, to the topic that makes all of you feel squirmish, right? Money. We go back to it, right? Money. I know the greatest competitor for first place in your life is the dollar. I know it is because of the world we live in, right? We, we, we get so worried and so uncomfortable when we talk about it. There's nothing quite so dangerous. Timothy writes and he says this. I want you to warn the rich of this present age about the deceptiveness of money. Now, again, nothing evil about money. We've said this before, right? Because scripture says what? It's the love of money that becomes the root of all kinds of evil. So you picture that root and all the things that can lead off into if you first, what, love the money instead of loving what the money can do. Jesus said you can't love money and prioritize it and still obey the kingdom of God at the same time. So, so he, he really talks about money more than he talks about anything else in, in some of his hands-on ministry and relations. And I'm not saying this. Here's the, here's the warning about your money. I'm not saying if you don't give, you can't do X, Y, Z. My warning is this. If you're not putting Jesus first place, you're destroying your own faith and your children's faith. Because if they see anything take number one in your life ahead of Jesus, then they're willing to realize, they're willing to remove Jesus from number one in their own lives. C.S. Lewis says this prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it while really he's finding it's finding its place in him. I butchered that. So let me read that one more time. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it while really it is finding its place in him. Talk about going in the world, but not becoming of the world. Talk about Jesus talking about money more than anything else. And here's why I really thinking, and it goes back to that, that thing with the rich young ruler, right? And, and the topic he has with him. I think, I think Christ did that and Christ understood that because until your commitment to Christ has affected area, every area of your life, including your pocketbook, your commitment to Christ is a sham, right? It's surface level. It says warning every man, that word warning, he's not going to hold back, but that word warning means counseling. It literally translates in the Greek into this, to impart understanding. Paul is saying, I'm willing to sit down and teach and tutor you guys to make sure you understand some of the areas you could stumble in. Maybe Paul's saying from his own life. You realize some of your own stumbles in your, in your walk, God can use to benefit somebody else if you're willing to use them? Yep. Teach and tutor to impart understanding into the heart and the mind. That's, that's what that word counseling, that word warning actually translates into. That we may present every man perfect in Christ. The goal is to bring people to maturity in Christ. Paul's goal. It's not to grow a big church. It's not for recognition. Paul's goal is that people become mature in their, in their relationship with Christ. He's saying, my goal, guys, my understanding, my desire is for you guys to grab a hold of this thing and make it your own and not be something somebody else was chasing. Because if you're chasing something, something somebody else got, you're going to come back and lay under the porch. And just go to sleep the rest of the afternoon disappointed. Striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. God's mighty strength. God's strength in Paul's life. Now, here's what I love also. Because it's God's strength in Paul's life, it doesn't mean that Paul didn't do anything. It doesn't mean that Paul just stopped working. What, what it means, you look at the word struggling or some of your translations, is going to have striving. 
This is the same word they would use for like competing in the games and athletic contests. Paul does not go about his work half-heartedly hoping that the grace and mercy will fill in the gaps. Too lazy to do it itself. Paul goes at this thing full throttle. But what do we say sometimes? Like you ought to pray like it's all up to God and then get up and do something like it's all up to you. Right? I think, I think that's a pretty good truth. Pray like it's all up to God and then get up and do like it's all up to you. How different can life be then? How can we say that he's first in our life if other areas of our life had not changed? How can we say his kingdom and those kingdom priorities are number one if we still got priorities in this world? How can we say we're fulfilling our commission? How can we say that we're showing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God? If the world was to look at your time and your talent and your treasure, what would they see? What would they see you're doing with it? How would they see you're using it? You ever just sit back and ask yourself why God's given you some of the stuff he's given you? Why has God allowed me to be retired early? Obviously, you can do something for him. Why has God allowed me to have so much wealth? Probably you can give it to somebody who needs it. Why has God given me this ability to do this? Probably you can use it for his glory. Why has God provided enough where like I do have extra free? Probably you can do something for his kingdom. Sit back and ask yourself and open your eyes to see and like why has God given you whatever it is? And then ask yourself, are you using it for him? I don't want to get to eternity, <laughs> the kingdom, heaven, whatever your title y'all guys want to give it, and look back and have any regrets. I want to look back like Paul. You know, Paul, Paul, you could say he's looking back at this church, which, by the way, he didn't get the greatest report on. Remember, they were struggling a little bit. They did a little bit of temptation and outside stuff get in. They were doubting and worrying. But Paul looks back and he says at the end, it was worth it. It was worth it. <clears throat> Are you going to be able to get to the end of your race and look back and say it was worth it? Whatever sacrifice I had to do, whatever time I lost, it was, it was worth it. Because it was for his kingdom and his priorities. Or is your life just about you? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning, Lord. Lord, we thank you for Paul's response. Lord, that he doesn't shy away or try to cover it up with some worldly emotions, but God, he, he, he addresses the issue at hand. He hits right where the Colossians are asking. And Lord, I pray that his wisdom and his response to them be wisdom for us today. God, I pray that his words, his reminders, that he has no regrets, Lord God, because you are worth it. Your kingdom is worth it. Lost people are worth it. God, thank you for the missionaries who have sacrificed everything to expand your kingdom both foreign and domestic, Lord God. God, thank you for, for those that are willing to sacrifice their own feelings and emotions and finances every day right here so that possibly somebody can feel your love and presence. God, may we deepen our relationship with you, Lord. Lord God, help us to see you and to be passionate enough to chase after you until we catch you. In your great holy name we pray.